We're in the middle of a Seeing Jesus series that Garrett actually designed some time ago, which is a very simple uh, study that's designed for any two or ten people to be able to get together and just uh, think out loud about Scripture. We, have, we, have, we started four weeks ago with a couple of introductory lessons. We talked about seeing Jesus' purpose Last week we talked about seeing his grace, and today we're going to talk about seeing his love. I think one of the most unfortunate things that humans let happen is that we become focused on the negative, what we don't have, what's not right. Um, Certainly we need to be aware of those things. But, but Paul tells us in his text of Philippians 4 about being content in every circumstance um, that, that he had learned the secret of being content. And he kind of gives that secret in Philippians 4, uh, verses 4 through 13, concluding with that statement, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now that text is often a little bit misused to say I can accomplish things, when in fact that statement is about I can deal with whatever the world throws at me and continue to rejoice. But in the middle of that text in verse 8, he tells us that to, to think on things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Let our minds focus on that. But Satan and the evil empire wants to take our necks and rub our faces in the crap of the world. And it's there. And we need to be about helping always to remedy and clean up and do whatever we can do, beginning with calling God's attention to it, which allows God then through the Spirit to call our attention to it and direct us in the right ways to to try to address that in our world. Um, But nothing um, is more positive than the outcome of what we celebrate today, the resurrection. Uh, The Lord's Day is not about the death of Jesus, even though we recognize it in order to celebrate really the human dilemma that we all die. But what Jesus offers is a resurrection, an eternal resurrection. I believe there's a knowing in all of us that there is the eternal. Psalm says that God has bound up eternity in our heart. That's why we can even reckon with, uh, in, in academics, the idea of infinity. Because there's something within us just knows that this is not all there is. That this is on a spectrum of, of eternity. Uh, we want to say time, but, but we exist, time exists within infinity. John said in 1 John 4.16, God is love. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. One of the most famous passages of Scripture simply says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. Summary verse of the Gospel. The love that he's talking about here is expressing really the totality of all of God's attributes. Everything that we see of God flows out of this essence of love. 
agape love. When Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 as love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, what we see is that all of those flow out of agape, the love of God. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, Paul describes God's love for us in saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. As we talked about grace last week, uh, it's just that attribute of God. The, The word grace means gift. It's a Greek word that just is reflecting God's giving nature. It's most often used in the New Testament in the context of this gift that God gives us of salvation in Christ. But he's talking here about a specific kind of love. There are four general words in the Greek language. We've talked about them here many times, but you may not be aware of them if you're new uh, to the faith or if you're new here, that the word that you will see most often and you'll see it sometimes uh, printed is a Greek word agape or agape, depending on how you speak Greek, because I don't. But nonetheless, it means the love of God. Agape love is a love of the will. It's not about feeling. It's not about sentiment. It is completely otherworldly. It's outside of our realm, coming into our realm. It's eternal. It's not a reaction. It's long-suffering. It's sacrificial. It's unselfish. It's hopeful. It's trusting. It doesn't react. God is who God is, and God acts out of who he is, not out of what we do. Now, the second love is phileo or filio, and it's dealing with friendship love. It's the kind of brotherly love, not family brother, but the kind of brother-sister love that we share, the camaraderie that we share in a particular fellowship, in this case, the fellowship of God's people. Now, these words that we're using here were Greek words. They weren't special Bible words. They were words that were used to express these spiritual truths. As Paul talks about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, really that whole last six verses, but he said we're expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. So if you just go look up a Greek meaning for these words, uh, you're going to find that the Bible uses those to describe uh, something uh, much bigger. But filio is a relational love in that it does involve our humanness. It is, it is the love of God in a relationship that we share something. The love of God is not a sentiment. It's not a feeling. So when we talk about loving God or God loving us, in this way, it's not how he feels. Although feeling does follow, 
intention. Uh, phileo is about a friendship love. Storge is a word that's used to talk about family love. This is the love that we have for the people that we call family, that we grow up with. It's a very instinctive kind of love. And the last is eros, and this is sexual love. And so what you'll see is you go from a completely immaterial origin of love to a completely material form of love, as eros will not exist in the world to come. In our Seeing Jesus series, we have two uh, texts that we use. The first is a story about Jesus. Now, when you look at the progression of the disciples' experience with Jesus, it's, it's, it's a bit mind-blowing. I think it's easy for us to stand on the sideline and say, well, how could they say that? How could they think that? When, in fact, most of us would probably say just those things because they were humans. They had conceptions of what the messianic kingdom was going to look like that were very human. So that when Jesus came, the whole nation of Israel, through whom he was promised to come and through whom he did come, they didn't recognize him because they had imposed their own view of what it ought to be on these prophecies so that when God fulfilled those prophecies, they didn't even get it. And so as they were coming down the road, this was a three-year ministry about that Jesus engaged in after he had spent his first 27 or 30 years uh, with, with his family, taking care of his family. God then sends John the Baptist before him as a precursor and a herald that he's coming. And then Jesus comes uh, on his heels uh, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he picks these people he wants. In fact, Mark just tells us he called those he wanted to be with him so that he could send them out. And that's exactly what he did. But it's real clear in looking at this discussion that their expectation was very material. They were expecting him to conquer. They were expecting him to put an army together. And then when they saw that what was completely really unexpected, that he could do miracles, which really when you look at the prophecies and see that he's going to be Emmanuel, how could you not know he's going to do miracles? He's God with us. But they didn't get that. They were still kind of locked into a certain view of things. And then suddenly this guy, I mean, he can do everything from make good wine to raise dead people. Make storms stop. Well, heck, this is not going to be a big problem kicking Rome out. And so there was even a jockeying of, for positioning who gets to be the head people in this new government, this new kingdom that they're announcing. See, this was a kingdom that was not going to be by election, or at least by election of the people. It was going to be a kingdom by selection. In other words, the king was going to establish a kingdom, and he will select who gets to be in it. No one can come to me unless my father who is with me draws him. Many are called, but few are chosen. And so the apostles were obviously something we could look at and see them grappling with the reality of who is he? Who is he? After he calmed the storm, even though he had told them who he was, they're getting over in the corner and say, who is this 
person. Tan and I got to go out on the Sea of Galilee a few years ago, and it's this, you know, wide lake where the headwaters come through and flow down the Jordan. It's beautiful. It's got, you know, these hills around it and just being out in the middle. And, but the way those storms come through, I'm told they come down through kind of a valley and they, it can be a very tumultuous area when there's a storm coming through. They're panicked. He's sleeping. He gets up, stops it. And they're standing there going, who is this? Now, who are you? That he would say in the last week, when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. He said, have I been with you this long and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The very substance of God in human form. Well, they're, they're getting ready to go to Jerusalem and Jesus says, okay, come on, huddle up here. Here's the plan. We're going to go to Jerusalem now, which they knew exactly what was going on in Jerusalem, and they knew they were trying to kill him. So, but we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to get crucified, and then I'll be raised on the third day. Ready, break. They're going, uh-uh, uh-uh, wait, no break here. Peter says, this is never going to happen. See, I'm a soldier. I happen to believe that when Jesus cut that person's ear off, he hit exactly what he was aiming at. I believe that they had trained for war. These were tough people. They were revolutionaries themselves. I could be wrong, but I think it was a warning shot that he fired to say, the next time I'm going to split your head open. And Jesus said, "Get, put your sword back. And he put the ear back on the soldier and this soldier that was getting ready to shackle him and carry him away. They didn't get it. We can't, this is a bad call, Lord. But it was the eternal call. Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world because it flowed out of this thing God was doing, which I believe is a tremendously great mystery, but I believe that the spiritual laws and the physical laws all point to the unbelievable is true. It is real. When Jesus appeared post-resurrection to the apostles... Thomas wasn't there, where we get the expression doubting Thomas. Thomas was just us. Jesus comes through a locked door, appears to them. These other guys are saying, Thomas, Jesus came and talked to us. And Thomas says, no, unless I stick my hands in the wound and see it with my eyes, I can't believe this. And John brings that out in this story that they're together again and Thomas is there and Jesus does the same thing again and he says, Thomas, come here, do it. Check it out. And stop doubting. Stop doubting. The gospel calls us to this juncture to stop doubting. As hard as it is to believe that you are that loved, that there is someone who will die for you at your worst. As if 
He committed your sin. That he will substitute himself. And what we see in these great schemes, as humanity chose the wrong tree, and the law of Moses was a revelation of what it means to live by the knowledge of good and evil, and why it is that the day you eat of that you're going to die, because no one can keep a law. We're not designed to do that. We're not gods. We're made in the image of God, but we're not gods. Now we are gods with an apostrophe S when we come to Jesus. But that's what God planned all along, is to show humanity this brings death. Don't go there. This is the problem Christianity is having with fundamentalism. And even conservative Christianity, we start thinking we're right with God because we're right about everything. We've got all these doctrines figured out. How the heck are you going to figure out predestination when we can't even calculate with infinity? We don't even know what that is. How can an infinite God interact with a finite world that he created? I don't know. But I do understand a little more as I get older. The ability to feel more timeless. To see things from a very different perspective. To get a big picture. Well, if you're infinite, you can definitely get the big picture because you got it, you drew it. Well... Jesus uh, goes on trial, and Peter has already been told he would deny him, and he, oh, I'll never deny you. And so when Jesus is being tried, he denies him three times. I don't know who he is. And Jesus caught his eyes as he's being led away. You can imagine that moment, that sense of failure that Peter must have had. Well, I mean, when Jesus was crucified, they gave up. All of that just went down the drain because so much of their faith had been in themselves, not where it needed to be. Well, Peter goes back to work. He left his nets, left his job. He went back, okay, I'm done, Ski, so I'm going to go back to work. And Jesus appears to him in this text in John 21. And in verses 15 to 17, you see this exchange that Jesus has. Now, they didn't recognize him. He's on the shore. They're fishing. They have this exchange. And then Peter realizes this is Jesus. And in Peter's way of doing things, he jumps out and runs to him. And and again, you can only imagine the guilt he must have felt. It's the kind of guilt a husband or wife feels when they confess that they have had an affair on their mate. To their mate. The greatest betrayal of all. That's what Peter was feeling times infinity, I suppose. And, and so Jesus sat to eat with them to show them he was resurrected bodily. And as he's doing that, he apparently kind of shows him the fish bones and says, Peter, Do you love me more than these? How much do you love? Do you love me a little bit? 
Because Jesus had told them, it's not a great faith that's going to move mountains. If you just have a little faith, you can move mountains. And he's saying this kind of love that comes from that. If you just have a little bit, you can do awesome things. I expect you to be human. God never expected anything else. He made us humans. But do you love me more than these? And what he says is, Peter, do you agape me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Peter would not claim the love of God. And Jesus says it again. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then he asks him, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Again, not claiming that highest form of love, the love of God. He had already demonstrated he didn't have it by his denial, by his abandonment of the mission in the darkest hours. But Jesus says again, feed my sheep. But the last time Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Now, our English version just uses the word love because all of these words are translated love. But he's saying, are you my friend? Are you my friend? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. And he says again, feed my sheep. Well, again, you see the backdrop of this. You see what Jesus is asking. Do you see this existential test that that Peter is under? And guys, all of us come to those junctures at times, but rarely do we recognize it. Because we have our heads buried. It's Jesus asking these parents up here, do you agape me? Yes, we, we phileo you, Lord. He's saying, you feed my lambs. These are my babies. I appointed you to raise them. They're not yours. You're trustees. Feed them God. But too many parents in those existential moments sell their kids out to the world. They want them to be popular and cool and smart and rich and things that make us look good. The world would be a lot more impressed if I were to tell them that my four kids were Harvard graduates or Princeton graduates and they were researchers or doctors or lawyers and they were famous and they were actors and actresses. But to say, no, Ted and I raised four pastors. Well, what, what do they do? Well, they're campus pastors, church pastors, and teen pastors. The world doesn't even know what to do with that. One, because of what we've done to ministry and in in many ways made the world look down on it. They don't know what to do with it. But you're going to be asked when you have a baby, who are you raising them for? And when your kids get to be teens, you're really going to struggle. Our biggest struggle as a church is just dealing with the parent, youth worker, church clash and just the frustration of trying to get teens through those years in this world and do it as a collective. What the church committed to helping these people raise these kids, uh, you're buying into trouble. Just like any parent (laughs) that has a baby, you're buying into trouble. They will be a teen one day. 
Kale was our strongest will baby, and I remember plenty of times saying to Tana, I dread when he becomes a teenager. (laughs) And he didn't disappoint us. Did not disappoint us. Well, what we're going to do is divide up for, you know, five, eight minutes here, and I want you to discuss these questions that they're going to put up here, if we got them right. There's the first one. How and what do you think Peter was feeling after his denial of Christ and his leaving the mission? The second is, how do you think Jesus was feeling when he appeared to Peter to restore him to his fold? And the third is, what does it mean to feed my sheep? So those are the three questions I want you. You can get in groups of two or three or whatever works. You can talk to the person next to you. We live in a, we live in a starving world. Um, most of our mental illness, most of our emotional illness is caused by unmet needs. The reason people chase drugs and alcohol and sex and money is trying to meet a need. I believe the foundational need of humanity is the need to feel our worth. To feel our worth. In psychology, they're going to say to be loved. I believe we need to be loved so we know who we are and whose we are. Because so many people are chasing after things to to validate themselves. I'm worth something because I do this or I do that. And, and those things that we so ignorantly and slavishly chase in the world are not going to satisfy it. In fact, God said through Isaiah and Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money on what is not bread <laughs> and your hard work on things that do not bring satisfaction? No human can fulfill, can fulfill that God need in people. But even we as Christians too often, we substitute Christian things for Christ. And we never get to Him. And what does it mean to feed my sheep? <clears throat> it's to, to help people see and experience the gospel so that they too can see that to God they are priceless at their worst. You can't earn the love of God. It is already unconditional. It is who He is. The love defines God, and God defines this kind of love. Well, this second little text is just a text that comes before that, when before Jesus was crucified in John 15, 12 to 17. And he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now again, we're in this friendship love now not just agape love, that we offer to Jesus, that Peter offered to Jesus. I'm your friend. It's reactive love. It's it's a partner love. We're friends. 
Jesus said in verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. As I talked about last week, from Brennan Manning's memoir titled, All is Grace, we could say the same thing. We can summarize Christianity in love each other, love one another. But using the definition of God, not the definition of humans. Well, here we see the importance of choosing that God chose us. Remember I said the kingdom was built not by human election, but by God's selection, by his appointment. And that we see here that this agape love comes down in friendship, that we offer to each other the love of God, but we offer each other the affection of human, the affection of another human. So I want to get you to take just a couple more minutes to discuss these questions. One that I mentioned, and let's just do the first one. You can see those others to, to think about, but who would you die for? You know, and, and that's supposed to say, even if they weren't good. Even if they're, they're not innocent. Who would you die for? Or would you? Okay, a couple minutes of discussion. And if you, if you get to those others, that's fine, but it won't be correct. You won't have done what you were asked to do. The point of the lesson is not to answer every question. There's no one that could answer all these questions. It's to provoke you to think about this experiencing the love of God. And how many things are you slavishly serving that are not going to yield the fruit? It's not food at all. And what are you serving to others that's not food at all? Food for the soul. Food that gives life. Food that, that brings this fruit that God wants us to bring. And how can we experience that? Last week I preached a sermon on grace. Somebody said, now where was grace in that sermon? It was kind of tough at times. It was intended to be provocative, to make you think about just how extensive the grace of God is and that God calls us to have that same grace and that God calls us to have the same love for the world that he had and that that love doesn't start with the high and mighty out here. It starts with the way, first of all, we treat God and those people around us. If we think, well, I would die for somebody unjust, how about can you just be patient with your husband or your wife or your kids and their humanness? Can you not resent them? Can you not be angry with them? Maybe, maybe they're doing their best already. We all like to think we're better than we are. Some days it's just frightening to think, I think I did my best today and I really was bad. But when we, when we learn the love of God, we learn what I said last week. 
it's okay just to forgive them. But the same love that Jesus offered that woman caught in adultery, that he offered her grace not to condemn her in what she had done that was a condemnable sin, he offered her the same grace saying, child, don't do this. Stop doing this. You're destroying yourself. So to see God is to see God's love, and to see God's love is to see God, and that's the challenge that we have. If we can just open our eyes, we can see it. It's all around us. The vast majority of what we all receive every day, even the worst among us, whether it's a drink of water or breath of fresh air or a glimpse of the blue sky or the sunshine, to be able to hear, to hear our loved ones tell us they love us, to hear the laughter of a child, to feel those sweet lips of a child giving you a kiss on the cheeks. Those thousands upon thousands of glorious experiences that God has just embedded into creation. And we focus on the one thing that's not going our way. Open your eyes. I'll conclude with a song that as a prayer and will be done. This is a song that captured me really early on. It's an old hymn. But it just simply goes, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray that in the sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.